Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Stay Tuned in Brief. I'm Preet Bharara. Last week, President Biden met with Chinese President Xi Jinping on the sidelines of the G20 summit in Bali, Indonesia. That meeting was three hours, and it was the first time the two leaders had spoken in person since 2017. To help us understand the key issues shaping U.S.-China relations, which is very important, and what, if anything, was accomplished by the highly anticipated meeting, I'm joined today by Evan Osnos. Evan is a staff writer at The New Yorker and former Beijing bureau chief for the Chicago Tribune. His first book, Age of Ambition, was based on his experience living in China, and it won the 2014 National Book Award. Evan Osnos, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Preet. Glad to be with you. I'm going to start not with the substance of the meeting, what was at stake, and what was accomplished, if anything. I first want to ask you a couple of other questions, which may be silly. So obviously, Joe Biden and President Xi have had many conversations and uh, and dialogue, and their emissaries have as well. So much emphasis has been placed on this fact that it's the first in-person meeting in five years. Why is it so important, and why is so much attention being paid to the fact in the age of Zoom and Teams and, and Google Meets, why so important that they're meeting in person? I think it's not a silly question at all. In fact, I think it's it, it is one of the strange and important pieces of international diplomacy that actually uh, it matters to get into the room. I mean, to give you a really um, kind of concrete example, Biden and Xi last saw each other in 2017, but they had previously spent time together. As you mentioned, they've, you know, they've, they've gone back, really gone back to 2011 was the first time they met. And they spent an unusual amount of time together. At the time, they were both vice presidents, and they went on this kind of almost like a sort of strange buddy comedy where they went <laughs> across China. Eventually, then she came to America and they traveled in the United States. The net effect was that they had given the United States a really rare extended look at somebody who was on their way to be the most powerful leader of China, meaning they understood things like how does he handle unexpected events? What happens when the meeting takes a turn? How does he handle stress? What makes him vulnerable? What makes him 
passionate, what gets him angry. And when you're dealing in a Zoom environment, as all of us have come to understand, there is a strange kind of constraint to it. And Biden is this believer, a sort of zealous believer in the power of a physical encounter of getting in the room with somebody. And I'm reminded that when he met Xi the first time in 2011, he came out of it and he said to his advisors, he said, I, I think we've got our hands full with this guy, which is a very sort of Biden-y form of analysis, <laughs> yeah. turned out to be quite prescient. So these meetings do matter. You know, let me just say for the record that you and I are not in the same room, and I still feel I can <laughs> glimpse your soul. You see my vulnerabilities. I can, I can see your vulnerabilities, <laughs> and, I, and I feel them. So one more non-substantive point, and then we'll get to the substance. So am, am I correct that a three-hour meeting of this sort is very long? Is that because one or both of them were very long-winded and the translations take a while? How significant is three hours? Actually, it is significant, and all those details matter. It, it, actually, one of the things that they did was that they did simultaneous translation for this, which is unusual for a summit meeting. Usually, you have it go afterwards. It, it actually buys the participants a little more time to think about what they want to say. Anyway, they made a choice to do that because they wanted to pack it all in. I will say, at the risk of of really a silly detail, but an interesting one, there was one break in the middle. Um it was reported as no breaks, which anybody who's done this kind of work immediately said, aha, this is the uh, the iron bladder standoff. Um, <laughs> but actually, there was a break. But the point was this thing went on a full hour longer than it was originally budgeted for, which is a good sign. That did not happen when Biden met Vladimir Putin, I should point out, uh, in summer of 2021. So what was at stake with respect to this meeting? Are we spending too much time focusing on it because it's just one of many things that the United States is doing. It's a very important meeting. I, I think it's funny to focus on the actual event, except that it matters because, look, we're still talking about major summits, whether it was Reykjavik between Gorbachev and, and Reagan uh, a generation ago. They're not just moments that punctuate the chronology of diplomacy. They're actually moments in which decisions are made, judgments are reached. And in this case, one of the things that we got out of this that we didn't know going in, and, and frankly, I was kind of surprised by was that China clearly has made a decision, Xi Jinping specifically, that it has it has work to do to repair some of the damage to its image over the course of the last, particularly the last three years. And so you saw them not only in just even in his physical bearing with Biden, that when they came out together, it wasn't clear at all whether Biden was going to shake his hand. I mean, Xi Jinping had met with Olaf Scholz recently and they hadn't shaken hands. It was kind of this awkward encounter. They started off Biden and she had this very kind of warm embrace. This reflects something very specific. If you look at polling data on China's image around the world, Pew just recently put out numbers that showed that in the United States, their standing has been cut in half over the course of the last decade. And that's not just because America is more hostile. You're also seeing it in South Korea, in the UK and elsewhere. China has some repair to do on its hands. Did Nancy Pelosi's trip from some weeks ago to Taiwan make this a more fraught meeting between the president and Xi? It did. It certainly did. I think Nancy Pelosi's meeting was a shock, really, to the Chinese. I've, I've gotten that sense partly from some encounters with Chinese diplomats since then. Right. But in that, a good way? In a good way? Did it move the Yeah, I think on? so. Oh, so, so, so you, yeah. in retrospect, yeah. some weeks later, you think that the Pelosi trip was good for the United States? I think it was good for the United States because, in a sense, it kind of forced the Chinese to recognize uh, the scale of 
the opposition that they were going to encounter in Washington because they really thought they could work this the usual way. You know, they would send the right person to meet with somebody close to the president and the president would squelch the trip. And that didn't happen. And what they realized was Biden took a look at his political profit and loss statement and decided, no, I'm not going to try to squeeze Nancy Pelosi not to make this trip. You know what's interesting about that? I was talking to some very high-ranking government officials in the last week. And, you know, one or more of them uh, has on, you know, has in their portfolio international relations and other national security issues. And I was struck, I and mean, this, this seems evident when you think about it, but I was still struck by something they said to me. And they said, because we were talking about the election and and would there be more scrutiny on their agencies or on their bosses if the House flipped or if the Senate flipped. And they said, well, on the issue of China, it's pretty bipartisan. You can't possibly be too tough on China, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. And to the extent that these folks were engaging in tough on China policies, they were sort of politics free. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's true. It's it's kind of this strange moment in which it's the one utterly bipartisan issue. Uh, I think, you know, we may be approaching a period when pressure on technology companies is number two. But right now, it, as you say, you can't, in effect, you can't be too hawkish on China right now in Washington. That creates political opportunity. It, it certainly f- forces the Chinese diplomatic hand a bit. I would also say, I think it's, it's, that's never a healthy situation to be in um, from a policymaking standpoint, when we have all of this kind of ambient pressure pushing in one direction. You need to have a robust give and take. You have to have a serious voice for engagement. You have to have a serious voice for serious uh, you know, pressure and scrutiny on China. But it, when, when you don't have one, it, it's a bit of a precarious moment. You can, I think you can make mistakes. So Evan, you wrote in the last couple of days in New Yorker the following, quote, about the meeting, quote, for the time being, the willingness to undertake more meetings seemed to be the most tangible result, end quote. Is that it? That's it in the very short term. And it's actually very important because when you talk to people in national security in Washington these days, one of the things they were really getting worried about is that all of the channels, the usual channels, were beginning to choke off. This happened partly after the Pelosi visit. You know, they canceled things like the climate dialogue, which has a long term benefit. But in the short term, they were also just literally just not talking to Americans. I mean, it was Nick Burns, the U.S. ambassador to Beijing, was kind of getting frozen out of stuff. And on the American side, also, they weren't talking much to Chinese diplomats. And then there was, a, a you know, even things like the hotline, which is the, you know, the kind of communication channel of last resort. As one of my colleagues reported recently, the Chinese weren't picking up, as he put it. So there was just a, a real risk that you have all of these planes, as we've all talked about in the past, all of these boats that are running into greater and greater proximity with one another in in the South China Sea, and you were losing the kind of avenues for to prevent what is something small from becoming something big. And that was dangerous. The title of your piece, by the way, that I just quoted from, did Joe Biden and Xi Jinping lower the risk of war over Taiwan? What's the answer to that? I think that the short-term answer is yes. For two reasons. One, so, so no war over Taiwan in like uh, the holiday season? <laughs> exactly. Not until you've taken okay, down good. the decorations. I think the answer is that there's that short term risk of a miscommunication, which is the core miscalculation, miscommunication, whatever you want to describe it. That has always been in, in these circles the biggest fear. 
uh, that that you get some sort of unintentional fight and that China is essentially encroaching on Taiwan, but they don't intend to actually mount a full scale war. And then you get uh, American and Chinese some encounter that, that gets big. That has been dissipated somewhat by the events. And then more broadly, you have Joe Biden walking out of that room, having formed a strong enough impression of Xi Jinping's intentions that he got in front of the cameras and said something that was quite remarkable, which he said, as you'll recall, he said, I don't think that China has the intention of an imminent attack on Taiwan. That is important because there's been this growing drumbeat coming mostly from the Pentagon, a little bit from the intelligence community, that there is a, a growing risk. And, and this this is a pretty clear statement of uh, to beat that back a bit. Reading between the lines, do you think that means that Biden knew she wouldn't be upset about that statement or that she implicitly approved and enjoyed that statement or something else? I think it was actually a reading that he knew that, that Xi Jinping would accept because actually it's not in Xi Jinping's interest to have the United States in suddenly red alert awareness or fear of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Not only because I don't think that that is supported by what the the best analysis says, but also because that would generate a response on the part of the United States that would that would fundamentally destabilize the U.S.-China relationship. I, I don't think that – look, I, I think that for all of the conversation and the emphasis that we have on Taiwan, it, which is entirely appropriate, I don't think that anybody really expects that this thing's about to happen, that there's about to be a war in Taiwan. That That's one of those things that has kind of taken on a little bit more momentum in the American vernacular than it has within the specialist community. Any progress on the issue of China's relationship with Russia and the war in Ukraine? Yeah, that was an interesting one. That was a something we weren't expecting, which is that recently China's begun to give little indications that they have a bit of buyer's remorse on this relationship. Everybody remembers right before the invasion that they signed what was described as a no limits partnership, just just short of a security alliance. And then since then, of course, it's been a series of setbacks for Russia. It's also been a colossal public relations problem for China. And just recently, you've gotten indications that they're beginning to rethink. So they out of that meeting, the Americans came out and said that Biden and she had agreed that nuclear weapons are unacceptable. Interestingly, the Chinese readout of that meeting made no mention of it. But the key and this is, you know, talk about getting into the sort of interesting little minor mechanics of diplomacy, but it all matters that when the Chinese were asked about that discrepancy, they did not dispute the American readout. That means, in effect, that that's what happened. And there's been little signs. There was an interesting leak from the Chinese side recently uh, in which a Chinese official said that Putin had lied to Xi Jinping in that meeting. Whether or not that's true, I'm not sure it is. What that tells you is that there's a lot of frustration at the senior ranks on, on China's side. And I think what's really interesting, Preet, is the question is, are they frustrated that Putin invaded or are they frustrated that Putin invaded poorly? Because the, the difference <laughs> – That's a very important it's distinction. It's a very important distinction because yeah. it actually begins to get into their conception of how countries can and should conduct themselves. And I'm of – at the moment, I'm of the view that they're not as angry about the invasion as they are by the fact that it has turned out to be a black eye for authoritarian countries because – that has real implications for their project of trying to make the case that China and Russia are a viable counterweight to the Western political 
idea. One more issue, briefly, though it's one of the most important issues, if not the most important issue, any progress on climate? Yeah, that was important. They restarted the climate talks, uh, which is not the same as saying that they've come to a full-fledged agreement of any kind, but that had gone into the deep freeze and it was causing real despair on the part of some of U.S. climate negotiators. There cannot be any serious, as we all know, I think there cannot be any serious progress on climate unless the U.S. and China are able to do something. And on that, they reopened the tap. That is one area where I am a bit hopeful because as you begin to see, one of the things we've talked about is China trying to sort of rehabilitate some of its image that has suffered in the last few years. Climate is a huge opportunity for them. And it's a self-serving opportunity, actually, because China will suffer if climate change goes unmitigated or goes unchecked. And this is about getting them to prioritize the issue and to make it actually a matter of diplomatic and security concern as well. Okay, this is not the most important issue, but it was interesting. And I wondered if you had a comment on it. There's this footage of President Xi essentially dressing down Justin Trudeau of Canada. What was was that about? That's super interesting. And how was that received? That was fascinating. Partly it was interesting because we very rarely get to see Xi Jinping in an unscripted moment. And uh, I mean, it's literally been years since we saw something like that. Everything else is is so formal. And here he was in this reception after some of their meetings when a pool camera from the Canadian side caught the image of Xi Jinping going up to Justin Trudeau and saying, everything we talked about in that meeting the other day was leaked to your newspaper. That's inappropriate, he said in Chinese, which is a fascinating formulation, actually. I mean, it is really... Wait, that sounds worse than inappropriate. <laughs> it is... It is uh, we might have we might have to believe that <laughs> for certain markets. I just went very blue, and and interestingly enough, Trudeau did not back down. Actually, Trudeau said, "Hey, I practice frank and constructive dialogue in our country. We believe in you know an open society, in effect." And they had this moment, and then you got the sense that Xi Jinping took note of the fact there was a camera at his at his shoulder, and he kind of wrapped things up, and he said, "Well, we need to build a relationship before we get to that," and he kind of walked off. The Canadians are not all that unhappy about it. They said, look, this is actually a window into how these two interacted, and our guy held his ground. But what was fascinating was that the Canadians and the Chinese have a terrible relationship right now. It goes back to 2018 when China locked up a couple of Canadian researchers and held them for a long time charged with espionage. They were later released, part of this big back and forth over a a Chinese technology executive. And ever since then... Canada has been this kind of surprising thorn in the side of the Chinese government. They never thought that Canada would be a problem. They thought, you know, hey, this is a country we can roll. It needs us and so on. And instead, they've ended up having quite a serious kind of philosophical pushback from the Canadians on a variety of fronts. And I think that's scrambled the circuits a bit for Xi Jinping. So in the immediate term, you're saying China will neither invade Taiwan nor Canada. I can't go so far is on the second your... one, but I I, <laughs> I, I think the, the, the surprise story out of this is that if you stand up to Xi Jinping, that you may come out of it actually a little bit better off than you expected. Okay, so, so two final things uh, I'm going to ask you for. One, would you continue to keep an eye on China for us? With pleasure. And number two, uh, tell folks about your new podcast quickly, and then we'll let you go. 
Yeah, thanks. I have a uh, I have the pleasure of doing a new podcast with my friends and colleagues, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser at The New Yorker. We're going to be getting together every Friday for a roundtable conversation about some piece of politics or another. And the honest answer is, Preet, you know, the two of us, the three of us, I should say, do this anyway. And it's just like somebody's sticking a microphone into the conversation. And we've already started and it's a lot of fun. Terrific. And what's it called? It's called The Political Scene. And do I have to teach you how to plug? <laughs> I'm a Kevin? pretty lousy plugger. Oh my God. David Remnick listens to this thing. <laughs> all right. So congratulations on the new podcast. Thanks, Thanks for all your great work. My pleasure. Uh, the terrific Evan Osnos. Thank you so much. Glad to do it. For more analysis of legal and political issues making the headlines, become a member of the Cafe Insider. Members get access to exclusive content, including the weekly podcast I co-host with former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance. Head to cafe.com slash insider to sign up for a trial. That's cafe.com slash insider. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The editorial producers are Sam Ozer-Staten and Noah Azulai. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Jake Kaplan, Namata Shah, and Claudia Hernandez. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.